Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Well, I could not be more thrilled than to be here this morning. It's a, it's a remarkable experience, this gathering of the UUMN in conference, and, and this gathering this morning will become a part of the story of Unitarian Universalism. But I must confess that I was a little bit confused when I came into the sanctuary, because I heard this huge choir doing what they call practicing, and I said, no, no, this can't be Unitarian Universalism. <laughs> and then I looked around and I saw all of these handheld fans going, and I was at that point pretty confident that I'd stumbled into First Baptist rather than Arlington Street Church. It, uh, it is, I think, though, a, a moment of hope is possible here because after this experience, it is entirely possible for us to believe that it may not be our destiny forever to be God's frozen people. <laughs> now, I knew as I was beginning to think about preaching for this service that that the music was going to be stunning, and it's been even more fantastic than I imagined. And, and I knew that I would have to think seriously about what the message was that, that I needed to bring to this gathered crowd. But just as I was beginning to wrap my head and my heart around this sermon and this service, the shootings at the Tennessee Valley UU Church in Knoxville took place. And I had to devote my attention, and really have since then, to trying to provide the very best kind of support for our congregations in Knoxville. Thankfully, very thankfully, we were able to provide support that was prompt and, and effective and appreciated. And so it's been a privilege to do that work like so much of my ministry as your president. But I had a hard time moving out of that space and into thinking about this sermon once again. You know, the Miles Davis quote, the Gospel according to Miles Davis, which was our reading this morning, I have framed in my office. And it's hung directly across from where my desk sits, so that I have to look at it every day that I'm in the office. And I find it so emblematic of who we are as a religious people. You know, we say that we believe revelation is not sealed, and we take that seriously. We're always in the process of creation of our community. We take the free and responsible search for truth and meaning seriously, and somehow it always leads us into new areas that we haven't explored before. So at some fundamental level, we're always trying to play above what we know. It is our religious 
task somehow. But I knew that there was a sermon I had to preach today, but I have to tell you I was really struggling with it. I thought first about giving you a brief history lesson, looking at our hymnals as markers in the development of this faith. From 1937, the Hymns of the Spirit, which was commissioned by both the Unitarians and the Universalists, and they decided that they could actually work together and come up with one book. It was amazing. It was the first visible sign that we were moving toward the large blended family that we have become. It was all about the humanist theist controversy and trying to create a musical and a liturgical container big enough and strong enough to hold both the theists and the humanists. And it worked pretty well through, through hymns for the celebration of life, which was commissioned immediately after merger in 1961 and published in 64, which tried to, for the first time, articulate, or at least to begin to articulate, a shared, a common identity for Unitarian Universalism. But, but even the editors acknowledged in their preface that the substantial use of classic hymn tunes, particularly those of the Lutheran and Calvinist traditions, dominated the music in that book. Through singing the living tradition, which, which, uh, which took our sources and our principles and tried to make them real musically and liturgically, which which moved us away from gender-exclusive language and even brought in some feminine images of the divine for use in our worship. It's where Bring Many Names made its appearance for the first time formally, that, that song which embodies so much of who we are, which embodies the reality that there are many ways not only to name but to understand the holy and recognizes that there's a spark of divinity in each and every one of us, each and every one throughout all of the stages of our life, no matter our gender or gender identity. It's a wonderful hymn, a wonderful hymn. And the beginning of multicultural expression in Unitarian Universalist worship. And then, of course, singing the, the journey, the new hymn supplement that brought us new rhythms and harmonies, new, new multiculturalism, and, and frankly, more celebratory music that we have benefited so greatly from. But I couldn't make it into a sermon. It just wasn't happening for me. Just wasn't happening. And then, then I thought, well, you know, I look backward. How about looking forward with a strong prophetic message about where we need to go musically and as a faith community? And, and I'm going to do a little bit of that later on because I am preaching for you. But, but that didn't seem to work all that well either. I was still struggling. And then finally, yesterday afternoon, I realized why I was having such a hard time. And this is a personal note. Because you see, this year for me will be made up of a series of last times. And this visit to the UUMN is the first last for me this year. My last year as President, as the year moves into spring, I'll be going to my last UUA board meeting, my last leadership council meeting, my last general assembly. And the truth is that I hadn't prepared myself to start saying goodbye. 
And I had to, I had to take that in and to understand that that was what was holding me back. And, and as usual, when you get to the truth, it's liberating. It allowed me to understand what it is most important for me to say from this pulpit today. And that is, frankly, to celebrate the journey that we have been on together in these last seven years. It began in some ways with the first UUMN conference I attended, I think it was in 2002, where I, where I preached. And what I said was that music had been carrying the water for us spiritually, because we were willing to sing about God even if we were not willing to talk about God. Even if the sermon was a lecture and the announcements were way too long, <laughs> the music could get us to that place of spirit. And at that conference, this group and I made some at least tentative promises to one another to work together because we both knew that we needed to help transform this faith we love, especially its worship life. And from there, there are many signposts, and I want to point out a number of, the, of them for you because, because there are a number of them to point out. Soon after that, the former department of the ministry at 25 Beacon Street became ministry and professional leadership offering support for musicians and administrators and religious educators for really the first time in a coordinated way. And it was a powerful symbol because musicians and administrators and religious educators had been feeling marginalized in their leadership in this movement. And we know that when a group feels marginalized, it's a sure sign that we have work to do together. Out of that grew a group called the, uh, the, the, the Professional Leadership Coordinating Council, where the leaders of the four professional groups got together and talked to one another about common problems and issues. It's a radical thought, but it had actually never been done before. And it worked. It worked because it modeled the kind of a team at the national level that we hope we see in congregation after congregation, in congregation after congregation. Because it's that teamwork that can help us play above what we know. And then, and then we created Sunday worship at General Assembly, which was really my idea, although you folks were so happy that, that I did it, which was really an attempt to set a bar for what worship could be in Unitarian Universalism. And it was done so collaboratively with participation from, from uh, the UUMN and, and, uh, and from other preachers, and, and, and it actually worked. And it's not that every small UU congregation can replicate what we do at General Assembly, but it said it's possible and and it said that what we need to do together is not just produce and sing better music. We need to lead better worship, worship that is more soul-satisfying, that is more, more coherent and, and, um, 
and gives us more help in getting through the week, which is what worship has to do at a minimum, at a minimum. I mentioned singing the journey before. I should mention the production of sources, the sources cantata at the last General Assembly and all of the contributions that Jason Shelton has made. It was like, it was like music came of age in Unitarian Universalism with the commitment to have that production of that piece be, be the opening ceremony for the General Assembly. And I don't mean to single Jason out. People like Nick and, and, uh, and other people here have been bringing music to Unitarian Universalism. Jim Scott, I could mention more, have bring, been bringing music to Unitarian Universalism, which was, has been, frankly, better than we've deserved and better than we have known how to use effectively. We're, we're just beginning to catch up. And I want to mention the the maturity, the maturation of this organization, the UUMN, it has been stunning in just a few years to see that happen. The creation of a credentialing program, which the first folks are coming through the system this year, finally. And if I can take just a personal note here, although many, many people participated in that maturation, I know. I would like to especially thank Beth Norton who has been such a fabulous partner to work with. We've done a lot. We've got a lot of signposts, a lot of markers of development in the, just the last few years. And I have to tell you that, that our work is paying off. I get into a lot of our congregations in the course of a year. And not only is the music life getting better, richer, and deeper, the whole worship life in our congregations is beginning to take on a different character than it had just 10 years ago. It is quite amazing and so gratifying to me. We have begun to play above what we know, and you know, it's actually beginning to pay off. But we have more to do. We haven't reached the promised land yet. We have to remember that, that there are many, many, many small congregations out there with very limited human and financial resources. And we together have to think about how we can support their music ministry so that they too begin experiencing this transformation which, which is beginning to happen among us. We have a lot more work to do on compensation for music professionals. And we need to pay serious attention to that. And we have more work to do on cultural appropriation or misappropriation. One of the things that <coughs> I know is that it, it's theologically consistent, important, that we view the resources of all the world's great faith traditions as available to us. That's, we claim them as our sources and, and we should be able to use them, but it's the how that gets tricky. And you have done good work on this, but our work is not finished. We haven't yet reached a point of spiritual balance around this. 
And that's where we need to go. <coughs> so those are a few of the things that continue to need our attention. But I want to go back to Knoxville for a moment. It was for us, for us Unitarian Universalists, in some sense a defining moment. And I am so proud of our congregations there. I arrived Monday afternoon after the shooting Sunday morning, and, and the congregational leaders had already been in conversation to say, we know who we are. We know that this radically inclusive theology that we embrace is ours. And we know how badly needed it is in the wounded world outside the sanctuary <coughs> that has been violated. And what they were saying was, we're not going to change who we are. We're not only not going to change who we are, but we're going to proclaim who we are to the Knoxville community so that they know, they know that there is a church that does indeed stand on the side of love. They rededicated their sanctuary last Sunday, and it was a phenomenal worship service. Rededicated to sanctify it again because it had been so violated, but, but also rededicated themselves to their religious mission. And they sang. They sang, bring many names, which is so much about our theological point of view, and they sang spirit of life, to bring that spirit into that sanctuary, to sanctify it once again. It was very moving. And so as I responded to this whole last two weeks, I, I decided that not only did we want to support those congregations, and as I said, I think we did that well, but also to do what those congregations committed themselves to do, which was to proclaim who we are. And so for those of you who are New York Times readers, in the New York Times this morning on page nine of the news section, there is a full page ad from Unitarian Universalism, the headline of which is, Our Doors and Our Hearts Will Remain Open. And I'd like to read you just a few sentences from the conclusion. Inspired by the Unitarian Universalists of Knoxville, Unitarian Universalists everywhere have rededicated themselves to our religious mission, to welcome the stranger, to love our neighbor, to work for justice, to nurture the spirits of all who seek a liberal religious home, and to help heal this wounded world. We will not give in to fear. We will meet hatred with love. We will continue to work for justice. Our hearts and the doors of our more than 1,000 Unitarian Universalist congregations nationwide remain open. Unitarian Universalists stand on the side of love. We invite you to stand with us. One more story from Knoxville and then I'm going to close. Because there are stories about music here. On Monday night after the shootings, the congregation planned a vigil. 
and invited the community in. And, and uh, when I arrived Monday afternoon, the worship planners said, basically, you're it, Bill. You know, we've got a few other little things, but basically you're it. And I said, fine. And I actually found a sermon that, uh, that afternoon, but the, but the evening and the whole process was not redeemed by my sermon. Because you see, the, the young kids who had been performing Annie Jr., when the, uh, when the shooter entered the sanctuary, had their own listening circle because we wanted them to have a place where they could tell their story. And 15 minutes before the service, they came to us and they said, you know, we need some closure here. And we would like to sing in the service. And so we went through and I preached and we lit the candles and said the prayers and, and everyone was feeling like it had been a very good thing to hold this service and then the children stepped to the front of the chancel and sang, the sun will come out tomorrow. And the sanctuary exploded. Everyone was on their feet applauding and stamping their feet and, and the spirit was there present with us, helping us all to, to grieve and even to begin to heal and it was brought it was brought by this extraordinary group of children and by the music that they had worked so hard to learn and to love. Music redeemed that tragedy. We're all trying to play above what we know. And there's no more important time for us to keep playing at that level. Our work together, yours and mine, has been a blessing to me. I hope it has to you, and I know for certain that it has been a blessing to this faith that we all love. Amen. Thank you.